Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from a mix of experienced medical device and medtech experts. These proven mentors will show you how to master the medtech space on your own terms without going to school. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. How will healthcare reform affect care delivery and reimbursement? And what will the impact be for medical device companies? These are probably the two biggest questions that medtech companies need to answer in order to succeed in the future. Unfortunately, there aren't solid answers at this point, but there are some people that can help. In this interview with Brian Contes, Executive Director for the Advisory Board Company, we learn how medical device companies can respond to the changing healthcare dynamics. Here are a few of the points we're going to cover. How will the increased scrutiny regarding the appropriateness of certain procedures impact healthcare providers and medical device companies? The number of hospitals offering catheter-based revascularization has increased by 30% over the last 10 years. What are the results of these trends? How will reduced reimbursement affect the recent influx of POLs, or physician-owned labs? Value-based purchasing programs, readmissions reduction incentives, value-based payment modifiers for physicians, bundled payments for care improvement initiatives, and commercial ACOs. What do all of these healthcare delivery changes mean for medtech companies? Percutaneous transcatheter heart valves and renal denervation? Is there too much hype around these two spaces? Brian provides us with his expert opinion. And what is the one major initiative that medical device companies need to really grasp as we head into the new era of healthcare? I hate to have these interviews interrupted, so before we dig in, listen to these quick messages. First, to get free email updates when another MedSider episode goes live, simply go to medsider.com forward slash free. We don't send emails often, but when we do, they're full of valuable content. No spam ever. Just go to medsider.com forward slash free to sign up. Second, MedSider is on iTunes. Just go to medsider.com forward slash iTunes, and you can subscribe to the podcast for free. That way, all the new episodes will automatically download to your iTunes account. It's super easy. Also, if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate it. That really helps us out. Okay. For you ambitious doers, here's your program. Hello, hello, everyone. It's Scott Nelson, and welcome to another edition of MedSider. This is the program where you can learn from proven and experienced medtech and medical device thought leaders and experts. And on today's program, we have Brian Contos, who's the executive director for the advisory board company, a global technology research and consulting firm partnering with 150,000 leaders in 3,700 organizations across healthcare and higher education. Uh, so without further ado, welcome, Brian. Appreciate you coming, coming on the program. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to, uh, to the discussion today. Absolutely. So let's first start out with um, a little bit more about you as well as the role you play within the advisory board company. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, well, let me just give you the, I guess, the quick history here. So I've been with the advisory board about 14 years or so now, um, and oversee all of the work that we do in what we consider our clinical research programs, uh, as well as our industry partnerships. So basically that means that I work with the teams here in our Washington offices 
to produce all of the content and resources that we provide to our hospitals, health system, and health industry partners on any number of matters related to um, key clinical areas, cardiovascular oncology, radiology, and so on, uh, as well as the organizations um, that partner with us in uh, biotechnology, pharma, uh, med device, and, and, and so forth. Um, so that's really where I spend most of my time. Um, I've, I've had a, a pretty decent history in our cardiovascular space in particular, um, really since day one working at the advisory board focused in on key strategic and operational concerns uh, facing cardiovascular providers. Uh, and then prior to the advisory board was doing um, work at the Yale School of Medicine uh, in their infectious disease department uh, researching in a basically an immunology lab looking at uh, T cell responses. Got it. Cool. No, thanks for thanks for the introduction, and I hope everyone has a little bit better sense for who you are as well as the advisory board company. And I thought uh, we'd cover we'd first start out with um, um, some of the trends um, uh, specific to the cardiovascular space uh, that that you're seeing across the country. And we'll use the recent piece that you wrote for Endovascular today as sort of a reference point, and then we'll we'll dig into. Um, the, the competitive landscape, as well as uh, as well as transition um, later into kind of the the healthcare economic umbrella um, topics like phys- the physician fee schedules, value based purchasing programs, and how med tech companies and medical device companies can can respond in light of uh, uh, these these major changes. So let's first start out with some trends, and I'll mention a couple da- data points that you uh, that you wrote about in that recent piece for Intervascular Today. Uh, let me just list. Let me just read some of these here. Um, so from 2005 to 2011, lower extremity angioplasty procedures increased by 67%. Venous ablation by 400%, which is phenomenal. It's a phenomenal increase. Venous angioplasty by 62%. Um, but yet coronary procedures decreased by 20%. So those are, you know, we've got two, two sides of the, the coin uh, there. So can you speak to those trends and, and specifically, you know, the, cor- the you know the, the coronary piece uh, with the decrease in, uh, in the 20% decrease over the you know the the span of 2005 to 2011 sure absolutely well you know i think we have to consider kind of the historical perspective here that for for many providers hospitals and uh, physicians alike um, over the last 10 15 years um, really the, the dialogue has been dominated by what's happening in the coronary arena um, and and so if we if we go back in time a bit, we found uh, many folks investing sort of disproportionately in capabilities around um, coronary revascularization. And you know across the sort of the, the early 2000s, we saw essentially an explosion in coronary procedures. Um, and, and part of that was a, a move away from open bypass um, toward uh, transcatheter approaches, um, which really um, accelerated with the drug-eluting stent. So we very quickly saw um, open surgery drop significantly. We've probably lost about 40% of the open um, bypass procedures for coronary arteries since they peaked uh, probably around 2002 or so. Um, but what happened in the latter part of that decade, so getting, getting closer to about 2007-2008 period, um, we really saw sort of a pullback in that market, largely driven by 
questions about the safety of drug-loading stents. So you'll probably recall the, um, the concerns that were raised with late stent thrombosis uh, with drug-loading stents. Uh, and that led to um, sort of an abrupt pullback in that market. And, and shortly after that, um, that sort of controversy, we saw the publication of the COURAGE trial. And the COURAGE trial looked at basically stable, uh, stable patients who had uh, coronary disease and raised the question of whether or not we needed to always intervene on these patients, uh, whether or not optimal medical therapy uh, could produce um, uh, perfectly sufficient results in those cases. Um, so th this really started to uh, create a, a bit more scrutiny over the use of um, PCI or percutaneous coronary interventions. Um, and, and we really haven't seen much of a recovery. Um, as that market started to pull back, uh, we saw that despite the fact that more programs opened, so there were more hospitals offering interventional cardiac services, uh, the absolute number of cases was decreasing. And the last bit there I would say is, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen even greater scrutiny, even leading to uh, lawsuits against certain programs and certain cardiologists uh, questioning the overall, basically the need for some of these procedures. And, and these have um, attracted a lot of press attention and I think have really created resistance in terms of the referral stream. So we're just not seeing as many cases being referred on for, for interventions. Uh, uh, and of course, behind the scenes, we've seen an increase in prevention. So um, better use of pharmacologic regimens and, and of course, as, um, as we've seen better and better technologies like drug-looting stents really take hold, fewer revascularizations needed. So you have this sort of confluence of issues. Hmm. Some of them are market scrutiny. Some of them are related to um, really effective technology that has decreased the demand for these services. Right. That's and, and there's a lot of interesting data there that, and I want to pull out a couple different things. And that you mentioned the number of centers offering PCI. Uh, procedures um, has increased, yet the overall case volume has has decreased. Which that that's uh, uh, that's that's an interesting interesting point. Um, but in regards to that sort of that multifaceted, um, maybe that's not the best description, but but the confluence of issues around around the decrease, the coronary uh, procedural decrease by you know over the you know the the most recent decade here. Does anyone? particular um, issue stand out to you? Is it the fact that technology has gotten better or the referral patterns just um, have diminished because of, you know, the Kurds trial, for example? Uh, do you think anyone um, may, is more substantial in, 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 uh, in, in relation to that decrease versus another yeah. one? Certainly, I, I think that the, the stagnation in volume, the sort of flattening of, of, of demand from the last, like, three or four years, I would have attributed that largely to um, the COURAGE trial and its sort of ripple effect, uh, really just questioning the need for intervention um, in uh, fairly stable elective patients. I think the reason for the decline that we've seen, so going from flattening to actually declining, uh, really ties to the much greater scrutiny and real concern that folks have around procedure appropriateness. Hmm. Uh, today, the uh, the NCDR, which you know maintains the registry for for PCI cases, um, will report on a case by case basis and overall for participating uh, providers. Um, basically, where do you stand in terms of procedure appropriateness? 
So there's a, you know, there's laser focus on this right now. And I think as a result of that, um, much more conservative management of patients relative to five to eight years ago. Got it. And, and how much do you think, um, one area that we didn't focus on is, is reimbursement. And how much do you think the fact that reimbursement for coronary procedures has decreased and that maybe has led to a little bit of the procedural volume decreases as well? Do you think that, that plays, a, plays a part in this? Yeah, I think we talk about that a lot in general that, you know, uh, declining reimbursement reimbursement or softening reimbursement rates um, will, will lead to a reduction in procedure volume. But the reality is PCI continues to be a fairly well-reimbursed procedure, especially for inpatient cases. Uh, it generates a pretty considerable contribution margin for hospitals. So it's not surprising that even as we've seen this volume decline in the last 10 years or so, we've probably added 400-plus hospitals uh, to the to those that are offering this procedure, um, where the reimbursement starts to get a bit more challenging is for the cases that have shifted outpatient. And today, about 30 to 35 percent of PCI cases are actually being billed as outpatient, so they're falling under an APC and not a DRG payment structure. And and, and there's a pretty considerable difference in reimbursement there. Um, now, that, I think, is, is simply putting pressure on hospitals to find new ways to, to achieve cost savings and greater efficiency. Uh, I, I do not think that alone that has uh, produced sort of a reduction in the number of cases. It's simply a reflection of whether it's being done inpatient or outpatient and the economics that come with that. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Let, let's shift a little bit more to the competitive landscape within the um, the hospital setting. I, I met, you, we we discussed a little bit in regards to the number of uh, the number of hospitals uh, offering um, PCI procedures, um, but there's a couple more data sets that I'll, I'll point out here that you that you wrote about um, the increase of thirty uh, percent over the last ten years. The number of hospitals offering catheter-based revascularization. The number of centers offering AAA stent graft repairs increased by 115%. That's enormous. So um, as more and more hospitals begin to offer these sort of um, endovascular-based therapies, what are the result, or what, what, are the, what do these trends mean, and, and really what, what's the impact for, for medical device or med tech companies, in your opinion? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, one thing just for context is uh, when we're talking about um, – basically procedures outside of the heart, so largely the peripheral vasculature, this has been the sort of greenfield opportunity for many hospitals in the last you know, five to, to ten years, um, really looking at peripheral vascular disease as a, um, th there's a lot of latent demand there is the way I would phrase that. So we have seen a huge increase in the number of providers offering these therapies, especially on the high end. So when we do look at um, procedures for treat, treating aortic aneurysms, um, even carotid stenting, the number of centers has, has actually increased pretty considerably. Now, you know, a couple a couple things have come with that. One is it, it somewhat commoditizes the marketplace. Uh, so you, you just have a lot more centers that have put their stake in the ground saying that they can offer comprehensive heart and vascular services to their community. Now, uh, for those centers that have uh, been able to really achieve a kind of a multidisciplinary approach there, they're marketing that and positioning themselves um, as being, you know, a, a destination center or a center of excellence. Um, and, and I think to a large extent, um, 
effective programs have been able to garner greater market share as a result of that, and, and they're getting more referrals. Uh, historically, it's been very difficult for hospitals to uh, to provide holistic heart and vascular care uh, in sort of a comprehensive environment because there there have been turf battles between uh, between clinicians. Um, once once you have moved from open to endovascular therapy, you've got interventional radiologists, cardiologists, uh, uh, neurointerventionalists, vascular surgeons, etc., all with the skill sets to kind of chase after this. Uh, so more competition in the market, um, some concern over uh, whether or not we have the right sort of multidisciplinary approach to provide these services, because that's certainly in the best interest of the patients. And, and of course, the more programs that are offering these these procedures, you know, from a from a from the industry side, that that means obviously more um, more purchasers out there buying the technology, but a more diffuse marketplace. You have centers that are um, subscale that aren't doing a, a, a whole lot of these procedures. So a, a little bit more, um, you, you know, uh, work needed to, to really get the products out into the marketplace. I think what's really intriguing, though, is as some of these procedures start to shift from the hospital to physician practices, because now you're talking about uh, potentially opening the market up by many fold in terms of the number of providers involved. And we are seeing select procedures being done increasingly in the physician office setting. Right. Let's speak to that because that, that's been a, a very recent trend, the, the idea of physician-owned labs. Um, do you see, with the, I guess with the recent um, influx of, in terms of the number of, of physicians offering these procedures sort of in, in their own clinics or in their own labs outside of the, totally outside of the hospital. Do you see that trend continue or is that largely driven by reimbursement? And if reimbursement drops, we may see Medicare reimbursement drops. We may see sort of the end of, of physician owned, uh, owned labs or physician owned clinics. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely a case where reimbursement matters. So before when I was talking about PCI and, and uh, there's, there's a lot of buffer there in terms of lowering the reimbursement and still having a profitable procedure, uh, the rates are just, they're much more slim in that office environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's just not as much to play with. So I think reimbursement is a, is a huge uh, factor here. Um, it's not the only factor. If you think about um, uh, venous angioplasty moving more toward a physician office setting. Some of that is convenience. You know, there's a massive number of patients out there who um, have dialysis shunt venous stenosis that need to be treated. Um, and, and sometimes the most convenient way to do that is to manage them in the office setting. It also may mean a little bit of extra uh, income for, for, the, for the proceduralists that are offering that service. Um, but reimbursement definitively plays a role here. And and we are seeing slimmer and slimmer rates, uh, in part because CMS has begun to um, increasingly package services um, related to endovascular uh, treatment. So think back to 2011 when CMS uh, basically created or, or implemented a policy around um, um, peripheral vascular for arterial interventions where um, now there's no more really composite coding that's used there. It's, it's all sort of packaged into, um, you know, one relevant CPT code. And that effectively has led to slightly lower reimbursement rates for those procedures. Uh, so, 
so there's there's definitely that risk that uh, if CMS comes in and, and continues to cut payment, that we could see these services swing back to the hospital setting um, because they just won't be economically viable for um, for physicians in their practice. I would say, where are we in the spectrum of that? Uh, we've probably seen the most uh, sort of accelerated portion of that adoption curve in the office. Uh, I think it's going to slow down going forward um, and potentially uh, reverse course if, if rates come down. Got it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. You, you wonder, um, you know, if we looked at like a, you know, a bell curve where we're at exactly on that, on that curve, if we've peaked and already starting to see, you know, declines or maybe, maybe just tapering off as, as you just mentioned, but you wonder if, uh, you know, if two to three years, from now, we'll look back at, at, at this, you know, this this time period from 2011 to 2013 or 2014, and, and say that was kind of a, a land grab, if you will, <laughs> for physician and yep. labs, um, especially as more physicians um, are acquired by hospital practices. If that if that will will factor into the equation as well, but. Um, Let's uh, let's use that the talk of reimbursement, I guess, as sort of a, a segue into um, healthcare economics. And there's a number of different topics here, but for lack of time, maybe we'll focus in on a few. Um, but from 2008 to 2013, you wrote that um, uh, inpatient reimbursement of peripheral arterial revascularization increased by 15%, which is a, a decent little chunk. However, physician fee schedules. Uh, for endovascular specialists have decreased substantially over the last five years. Do you think this will continue? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because every year we we talk about the sort of imminent reduction in inpatient rates for these services, and yet every year CMS produces a uh, inpatient prospective payment update that um, provides a, you know, marginal to decent increase in, in payment for these services. And in fact, if we look at the 2014 proposed rate, it looks like another positive year for, uh, for uh, endovascular procedures, at least on the inpatient side. Um, so, so I would say that things are holding steady there and we will probably continue to see um, slightly positive updates on the hospital side of things. Um, that said, for as much decline as we've seen on the physician side of the house, uh, again, I think that may have peaked. Um, the phenomenon of, of bundling payment, um, there's not a heck of a lot more to bundle. If we look at the, uh, you know, the, the, the different types of endovascular services, there aren't many left over for CMS to come in and, and sort of achieve those cost savings that they've realized with things like um, lower extremity arterial revascularization cases. Uh, so, so I think the physician fee schedule should stabilize. Um, and we are seeing encouraging signs that the, the whole debate about the sustainable growth rate or the SGR, that this may be the year, finally, for the SGR to, to be replaced. Um, so I would imagine that over the course of the next three years or so, we should see a bit more stabilization in the physician fee schedule. Um, and then on the hospital side, you know, slight positive increases there. So overall, I think the economics in relative terms look decent. Um, whether or not we're keeping pace with cost, that's a whole nother question. And I think in general, um, we're not. So I think on a margin basis, these procedures are becoming slightly less profitable. But but again, they've, they've been in sort of a privileged position of being fairly lucrative uh, services to offer um, 
so I think there's still some room there mm-hmm. uh, that even with some margin compression, um, it's still an attractive business to be involved in. Got it. Um, and I'm going to ask you this now. It's a little bit off topic, but I'm going to I'm going to forget, and uh, and this interview will be over with. by you know, if I don't ask now, but going back to the Venus ablation trend, the the you know from 2005 to 2011, Venus uh, Venus ablation has increased by 400 uh, percent. Surely we won't see those increases continue, but um, do you think that's something that, for example, as cardiologists, you know, in particular, begin to do more of these types of procedures, and their patient base is largely uh, uh, is lar- their patient base is largely, um, I guess, funded by 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 CMS or Medicare? Is that sort of a, a number that will be a red flag to to CMS um, as they look at as, as they adjust maybe a reimbursement for? Uh, for that CPT code or those that kind of that grouping of CPT codes for that procedure? I mean, it could be, um, you know, we got to that 400% figure in part because of the um, relative attractiveness of offering venous ablation procedures in an office setting. Um, Particularly, um, this is a a low acuity procedure. Um, You know, some debate about how much of these cases are being done more for cosmetic reasons versus, uh, you know, sort of clinical need. Um, But regardless, we've seen huge adoption rates um, of of RF and laser technology in any number of office settings, cardiologists, vascular surgeons, um, primary care, you name it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That that has been seen as sort of an attractive service to offer um, and, and a fairly lucrative one, whether it's a self-pay basis or instances where Medicare is paying for the service. Um, but it's it's hard to believe that we'll continue to see that growth rate. Uh, the market has you know matured significantly in the last five to ten years. Um, now, when CMS sees such rapid growth, it can trigger sort of an investigation to understand what's going on here. Are we are we reimbursing? Um, Appropriately, are we over reimbursing for these services? Now, where CMS typically comes down is in instances where there's real question about the uh, appropriateness of the case, uh, whether or not the service is being offered consistent with either national coverage decisions or uh, or, or sort of local coverage decisions. So, I, I would argue that unless there is a, a real question mark on um, the appropriateness of the cases that are being performed, CMS probably won't really act on um, on this in any particular fashion. You know, again, they may investigate to see if, if the reimbursement rates are consistent with the costs that are being reported. Mm-hmm. But there's been no there's no indication of that right now. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so going back to uh, some of these uh, different uh, healthcare economic topics, we talked about physician fee schedule, physician fee schedules, and that's an interesting sort of dynamic in that that um, for the procedures themselves, reimbursement continues to sort of steadily climb, but uh, but yet for the for the for the people, the physicians that are actually performing the procedures, their their fee, their, their payment uh, or reimbursement has dropped. It's such an interesting dynamic, but. Um, Moving on to uh, to some of these other topics, maybe let's pick out one or two that are maybe interesting to you. Um, whether we talk about value based purchasing, um, um, bundled payments, we talked about that a little bit. Maybe even ACOs. Uh, what's what's what what do you find interesting right now, or, or and and maybe what's what's most important for med medical device or med tech companies 
uh, moving forward when looking at some of these different uh, changes in healthcare delivery models? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, I would say of all the different um, activities that are uh, sort of evolving and taking hold right now, um, anything that really changes fundamentally how hospitals and, and physicians are paid for the work they do, that's really what we've got to focus on. So within that realm, a couple of things um, come to mind for me. First is um, probably a point of clarification on bundling. So everything that I've talked about thus far really speaks more to how CMS um, is evaluating services that are provided in the same setting and how that sets the rate for the physician fee schedule, um, different in kind from bundling a la healthcare reform, mm. which is looking more at how do we take the, uh, the, the way that we would normally pay physician and or hospital um, and, and basically pay for a set period of time of services around some type of incident procedure or medical diagnosis. So that type of bundling um, is intriguing because it, it's largely structured around how can we provide, as a provider, how do we provide the most efficient, cost-effective care in a bundle so that we basically have more dollars that we can share among the participants. So classic example might be uh, cardiac surgery bundling where um, hospital and physicians may be paid one lump fee to cover, let's say, a 30, 60, 90-day window from that procedure. And any of those savings that they're able to achieve, they can basically have a, uh, they can split those. So um, there's a gain-sharing element to that. Mm -hmm. um, so that in and of itself is, is likely not a direct threat to most of the med tech firms that we would be thinking about because it's sort of all rooted in you're doing the procedure, now do it very efficiently and cost-effectively. Now, so the procedure is being done, it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, now, what technologies are used within that could have implications for med tech, whether you're using you know, uh, catheter or stent type A or B, uh, if one is more economical and produces similar results, you're likely to go with that one. Um, but I don't think it's a mechanism to decrease utilization of the services. It's just a question of which technologies will we use uh, to get there. Got it. Uh, accountable care organizations or shared savings models are different and could have even broader implications because in this instance, um, really the, the objective here is to reduce the actual cost to the payer. So basically to bill Medicare less for services um, if you take that to that extreme, it means reducing the reliance on acute care services, do fewer surgeries, admit patients less frequently. Um, and in that type of environment, there will be pressure to do fewer of these very expensive, very lucrative today, but very expensive procedures. Uh, and, and as a result of that, we could see, at least for some uh, endovascular procedures, we could see some pressure on, on the volumes. Um, as, a, as sort of a non-example, take renal revascularization. Um, we've already seen a huge decline in renal cases because of questions of efficacy. Had that decline not already occurred, I would have put renal uh, revascularization at the top of the list in terms of um, target areas in endovascular for reducing sort of the overall cost of care because there just was no real clear sense in many of those cases 
that we were uh, improving the outcomes for the patient and and creating sort of endure kind of durable um, um, efficacy for them. So accountable care organizations are kind of interesting in that uh, that they could lead to and likely will re lead to reduced overall utilization, and particularly in the hands of uh, of physicians. So a physician-led accountable care organization, they have every incentive to avoid hospitalization. Huh. It's not their revenue to lose, uh, but it will help them achieve their cost savings goals um, to receive a bonus, basically, from, from the payer. So physician-led ACOs, I think, are the ones that we need to watch most closely in terms of potentially having a dramatic uh, impact on referral patterns to specialists as well as to, to hospitals. Got it. So that, that, those are those are really two uh, two great topics that you sort of picked out to focus on is value the, kind of the idea of value based purchasing or value based programs versus ACOs. ACO and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in essence, ACOs may impact utilization uh, or, or procedural volumes versus value based programs are going to more uh, in, in terms of how the impact on, on med tech companies. Uh, value based programs are going to be more um, um, related to what sort of technology is used. Uh, to, to treat this patient uh, within a certain, you know, to get the best results within a certain period of time. Um, um, so going back to the ACO model, though, is that a situation where um, if, if it's a physician-led ACO model, they may look at specific numbers and say, okay, this specialist is doing an, inor an inordinate amount of procedures in comparison to his, his or her colleagues, Let's investigate this further and figure out like why why is this why is this endovascular specialist intervening so often and and you know they may get you know he or she may eventually get a, a you know a slap on the wrist so to speak is that kind of what maybe that would look like? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's it's completely in the interest of the physicians that are partaking in that ACO to control utilization of those high-end services. So a you know, classic example I oftentimes use is actually related to, um, to back pain. Um, you know, lots of controversy around the number of surgeries we do for um, in back uh, versus, let's say, a very conservative management approach like physical therapy. Now, uh, if, if I am a, a physician who has an ownership stake in an ACO, um, I'll, I'll very likely look at the practice patterns of the folks that I refer to and understand what is their utilization rate of different procedures and then what's the relative outcome of those patients. Uh, and, uh, and, and I will begin to steer volume toward those specialists um, that can produce high, you know, sufficiently high uh, outcomes but doing it at a much lower cost. Uh, and, and I think in the endovascular world where we oftentimes deploy a number of adjunct technologies to treat patients, uh, you know, there could be greater scrutiny over whether or not that makes sense. Um, you know, should we, should we be using all of the different um, devices on top of, you know, simple angioplasty? You know, when should we or shouldn't we stent? With now having a drug-leading stent in the market, you know, which cases really need to have that, uh, that technology versus traditional bare metal stent. So these are questions that savvy uh, physicians may start to ask. Now, I think that's, a, that's sort of a second order priority, frankly, because there are, there's much more low-hanging fruit probably in the near term. Uh, but I do think as we get out three and five years into the evolution of accountable care organizations and shared savings programs, then 
specialty care really starts to be an area of focus, particularly with what we would consider preference-sensitive procedures, instances where there are legitimate alternatives uh, that produce similar results. So this is something we need to be thinking about. Um, do I think this is going to be the first place that, uh, that these ACOs look? No, but it, inevitably, these very high-cost areas, cardiovascular, oncology, orthopedics, um, will be uh, kind of brought into that, um, brought into the fold to look for those opportunities. Got it. And so, and so the the answer now, I mean, especially if if there's other sort of low hanging fruit, to use your words, that that may be impacted more by some of these changes in the near term. But in the long term, is is the answer for med tech companies in the longer term? I should say, is the answer for med tech companies, medical device companies, to when they when they um, when they fund clinical trials, to really make it make it a point of emphasis to look at not only the cost of the device in comparison to other devices, but the cost of the device compared in comparison to uh, you know um, medically managing a patient is that going to be like of extreme importance moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think what happens here is we extend the amount of time that we care about in terms of efficacy and cost effectiveness. It's no longer simply a question of what happens in the acute event. But as we look across three, six, nine, twelve months, um, how do alternating, you know, different procedural options or treatment options stack up relative to each other? That will become more and more important. So thinking about, you know, what are our endpoints? How far out are we looking? Um, that that becomes really important. And you know, and I think related to that is, um, it, you know, and that speaks to how do we demonstrate value, particularly particularly to a clinician. But I think it also gets into a discussion about what are we selling in, in sort of the med tech world? Are we selling a product or are we selling a solution? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, increasingly, we're finding that the uh, organizations we work with, um, you know, they're, they're really working on refining their solution sales approach and, and moving a bit away from sort of that transactional product sales that's largely focused on identifying a physician partner and, and sort of gaining a foothold in the organization, but thinking more broadly about how, how do our services and our products fit into a, uh, a broader sort of solution for, for treating these patients that provides value that perhaps is different from what we've demonstrated historically. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, to your point, I think, uh, you know, Omar Ishrak, the CEO of Medtronic, has been actually very, very, uh, very vocal, uh, I guess, in the, in the public forum about about some of these major changes that you've that you've just referenced. Uh, and it's interesting that you just brought those up. So, um, kind of kind of moving on as we conclude this interview, um, can you speak to? Uh, I, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on a couple, you know, um, uh, therapeutic areas, I guess, that are receiving a lot of attention: uh, percutaneous heart valves as well as renal denervation. Can you quickly speak to those two different markets? Uh, maybe the heart valves, uh, um, the percutaneous heart valve market being maybe a little bit too overhyped. I'm just curious to get your thoughts and then what you think of the uh, the renal denervation mar- market here in the U.S. Sure, absolutely. Well, there's no question that on the transcap valve side, there's just been huge, huge excitement. Um, and, you know, arguably, uh, you know, transcatheter valves, perhaps the, the, the biggest news of the last, oh, I don't know, some would argue, 10 years for cardiology, at least. Um, I don't know if that's quite right um, when I think about what kind of impact I, I think these will have, but regardless, it's a big development. Um, and we're talking about um, 
having an option for patients in some cases that had no real option, um, and then providing an alternate option for for surgical candidates. Uh, you know, the market has really has really been receptive to to TAVR, um, and and we see now that there are probably oh I don't know maybe 220 250 sites that are actively implanting uh, transcatheter valves and and many many more sites that are interested in coming online. Um, it, we've probably seen about 6,500 commercial implants since Edwards received its approval for the Sapien valve, uh, and that number seems to be growing at a pretty steady clip. Um, now, the work that we're doing at the advisory board, I would say almost daily, we're getting questions about this market opportunity. Uh, and, and some of these questions deal with, um, does it make sense for us to open a program? Uh, some more strategic questions to very operational questions. How do we deal with billing? How do we handle instances where you have a cardiologist and a cardiac surgeon involved in the case? Gets into the minutiae there. Hmm. Um, you know, on one hand, I, I think that there's a lot of running room for the procedure. And when we look at countries in Europe that have very generous reimbursement policies, like the United States, we've seen pretty dramatic growth in the use of transcatheter valves. So I, I do think across the next three to five years, we're going to see um, a, a, pretty, a pretty significant expansion in the market, not only for uh, the clear-cut cases for today, but we'll probably see some indication creep where uh, we're going to see some use, perhaps off-label, um, but that's always a moving target. Um, you know, the FDA-approved criteria will likely shift over time. Um, so, so lots of attention, lots of interest there. Uh, I, don't, I don't see any really near-term glass ceiling um, in terms of number of cases, in part because only so many centers will be able to come online. If you look at CMS reimbursement criteria here, uh, reality is uh, there are only a only a fraction of today's valve surgery programs have the requisite program volumes and operator volumes to um, to provide transcatheter valves. Uh, so at least based on those criteria today, I think um, you know rate limiting step will be number of centers. For those that are offering it, I think they have a lot of running room. Got it. Uh, yeah. When it comes to Sorry, go ahead. Uh, th that's it. So, so we, we spoke earlier about the number of centers offering endovascular procedures going up, um, but yet the, the volume kind of plateauing or going down. But in this case, it's actually going to be the number of, of centers that uh, are offering uh, a TAVI or TAVR procedures going down maybe, but, then, but yet the utilization uh, or vo procedural volume will actually increase. Yeah, I don't think we'll see an absolute decline in the number of centers um, offering TAVR, uh, but we won't see the kind of explosive growth that we saw with uh, coronary, coronary interventions. Um, and, and I also think lesson learned. I think there are a lot of programs out there that jumped on the bandwagon offering uh, PCI or cabbage over the last X number of years, and some of them are looking back and saying, gee, we just don't have any economies at scale. We can't get coverage. We're having a hard time maintaining this program, uh, and I think they've learned that you know unless you've got all the pieces together, um, it, it may not be a wise investment. And the macroeconomic picture is such that we are seeing more consolidation in the marketplace, and there's pressure to not simply go off and and start uh, a small scale program. So a little bit more of a rational growth trend, I think that we'll see with with the Taver. Uh, cases. Got it. Got it.
and then maybe quickly talk about you I, before I interrupted you. Uh, <laughs> maybe you were going to touch briefly on uh, renal denervation. Yep, absolutely. So this is a tricky one. Um, on one hand, if you if you look at trial results to date for renal denervation, it's a really exciting technology that, at least in theory, has a very large uh, potential population of patients to treat. Um, and, and so I think the hype that we're we're starting to pick up on right now, in, in some ways, is, is very much justified. Um, but what's what's really intriguing to me is when you look at more mature markets in Europe, for instance, that have been offering renal denervation. Um, there's interesting dialogue now about whether or not the market is is it as big as we presume it is. Um, so this could be a case where it's a bit overhyped. Uh, folks will often talk about the fact that there are about 70 million Americans with hypertension and that there are a few million that have sort of um, later stage, uh, stage two uncontrolled disease. Uh, but what we're finding is it's probably a, a fairly narrow subset of that population where this procedure makes most sense. Uh, now, reality is that's still a very large market, and the denominator of patients there uh, is much larger than um, than the the base of patients for something like TAVR. Uh, so I, I think that there's there's a lot of room here, um, but we're not talking about millions of patients that are good candidates for this in the United States. Um, but I do think that the results have been incredibly positive. Um, my my expectation is uh, we'll continue to receive great results, and we will see U.S. approval. Uh, not too far in the in the future, probably in 2014, when we'll get the first uh, FDA-approved uh, technology in the market. Uh, and then I think we're you know we're really going to have to work on figuring out exactly who are the optimal candidates, how durable is this procedure, um, do we need to do repeat procedures on patients, how does that stack up uh, potentially to um, uh, you know new medications that perhaps may develop across the coming years. Uh, but but lots of excitement. I think for the most part, it's uh, it's warranted. Um, but we can look at sort of the European experience, and I think get some um, some nuance around how much growth we can really anticipate for this procedure. Yeah, and I think I, I'm going to bring up Omar Ishrak again. But uh, but I think he I think last week even maybe there was a piece that I read about him attributing the uh, slower than expected European growth for their simplicity catheter to, uh, I think he tied it to reimbursement and in that there's several European, uh, uh, countries that sort of, and I'm paraphrasing here, weren't on board, uh, with the, with the reimbursement component. And that's why maybe the volumes weren't, uh, weren't increasing as rapidly as they, as they expected. And that certainly, it certainly could play a role here. And, you know, CMS has a history of, um, of you know exerting its force when it comes to what what is and what is not covered and and sometimes uh, outside of the parameters of what the FDA has even approved you know carotid stenting is probably the classic example where CMS's coverage is much narrower than actual FDA approval um, and on a procedure like renal denervation that could be a pretty substantial market um, it, it's it's reasonable to assume that payers will pay extra close attention. Uh, considering how large the market could possibly be. Got it. 
Cool. Okay. So my last, uh, my last question for you, Brian, is um, you're, you know, with, with your work uh, at the advisory board company, you're consulting on a daily basis with, with med tech companies and, and, and uh, as well as, you know, um, hospitals and, and large healthcare systems. So with that said, what, what's like maybe the, the, the biggest takeaway uh, that you think device companies should focus on, you know, to, to, um, uh, to see results, I guess, or positive results in the, uh, uh, in the coming years? So to me, it really it boils down to um, sort of the catchphrase du jour, um, but it's really important, and it deals with proving value. Um, reality is there are many competing technologies out there for treating, uh, for treating the patients in question here, particularly when we think about endovascular therapeutics in the peripheral vascular space. Um, and, you know, historically, I think uh, we've been sort of able to get away with um, a tight storyline around the clinical efficacy and safety of technologies, but increasingly, uh, that's just not enough, um, in part because Clinicians, I think, are becoming more savvy to the business side of the house, and they're being pulled into conversations around the overall sort of macroeconomics of their cardiovascular service line, for instance. Uh, but also because we are finding that uh, more and more, as hospitals and physicians are aligning and they're working together on strategic priorities, uh, we, need, we need to look at metrics of success that are not just about um, revascularization rates and uh, things of that nature, but in, instead looking at, you know, what's the long-term return on investment here? Are we able to reduce uh, the, the costs and complications of these patients, not only in, you know, during that acute event, but across time, and how does that accrue? Um, so understanding the broader value picture and how your product fits into that dialogue is really important. Today, so many hospitals are focused on reducing readmissions and addressing, um, you know, unnecessary redundancies in care. Um, how does a particular product fit into that can make a substantial difference in terms of its ability to end up on the shelf, frankly. Uh, so, so rethinking value proposition, really critical here. Um, and, and understanding what are the motivators of a different in kind purchaser. If, if it's not the clinician that you need to convince, but it's somebody in the supply chain, uh, you know, executive level, or if it is a, a VP or CXO in the hospital um, that's now your new audience, what motivates them? What are they concerned with? Um, their, you know, your, your traditional pitch around uh, clinical efficacy is probably going to fall on deaf ears. So really understanding uh, their top priorities and, and how they're thinking about uh, their business moving forward is, is really quite essential. Yeah. No, those are, those are good points. It sounds like those metrics, uh, those, those uh, value metrics, I guess, for lack of a better description, are still very moldable and, and yet, to be, uh, yet to be sort of determined. I, I've got, in, in thinking about this topic, I've thought that if you're, a, uh, you know, if, you're, if you're ambitious and you sort of want to, you know, make your, make your mark within a, within, a, within a medical device company, instead of getting an MBA, you should probably get a, uh, you know, an MPH, just because that seems like where, uh, where um, you're going to be able to bring a lot more value uh, is, is sort of understanding uh, the, the, the healthcare system versus, uh, versus you know, from a, from a business perspective. Does that make sense? 
Well, you know, it's actually a really good point. Think about the evolution here um, where you see joint degrees. Uh, lots of physicians in the last 10 years have pursued uh, MD, MBAs, mm-hmm. uh, and I think they've done well to, to do that. Um, but as we've begun to migrate from sort of a volume to more of a value slash population health management perspective, all of a sudden that sort of MPH-like um, comprehension of the healthcare universe really becomes important. And that is truly where we are moving. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a palpable change from traditional fee-for-service to looking at you know, population health or total cost management. And those are almost synonymous uh, with each other. And appreciating sort of all these dynamics is, is complicated. It's not, it's not sort of the traditional business track that you might, uh, m- might approach. Uh, so, so I think we are going to see an evolution in terms of what's the leadership profile that leads to success, whether it's success for folks um, in the med tech world or success for those folks that are leading large uh, hospitals and health systems or physician practices. Got it. Uh, all, all really good stuff. I wish uh, I wish we had a you know a, a couple more hours where I could sit here and pick your brain, Brian. Uh, uh, fascinating, fascinating information. You're you're a wealth of knowledge uh, when it comes to this uh, this sort of stuff. So I can't thank you enough for for coming on. And for those listening that want to learn more about you or your work at the advisory board company, where uh, where would you where would you direct them to? Well, I would say for uh, learning more about advisory board, I would simply direct you to our website, www.advisory.com. Any particular questions for me, I actually welcome emails. Um, So feel free to shoot me an email at contosb at advisory.com. That's C-O-N-T-O-S at advisory, or contosb, C-O-N-T-O-S-B at advisory.com. Advisory.com. Cool. Well, th- I can't thank you enough for uh, for opening uh, opening up the email correspondence as well. So if if you're listening to this, uh, that's one thing that I've I've recognized in doing these interviews over the past you know three years. If you're listening to this, take action. You know, if you've got a if you got a question, reach out to Brian. Um, hopefully, hopefully you won't be bombarded. I don't think you will, Brian. But <laughs> but take him we'll up on that. Manage. Yeah, take him <laughs> up on that offer. Um, and and as I found out, uh, you know, before recording this this conversation, if you're listening to this and you work for a large strategic or not necessarily maybe even a large strategic uh, device company, you may have access to some of the tools that the advisory board company has. So you may want to check into that because as I dug into the advisory board company. Um, there's certain, I'm, I'm certainly going to take advantage of that uh, and and learn and, and utilize some of those some of those services that I, that I have access to that I didn't even know about. So um, anyway, I think that's it for now. Um, anything else you want to add, Brian? No, I just want to thank you, Scott, for giving me the opportunity and and just reiterate that if anyone does have questions, feel free to reach out. Uh, whether it's about this discussion or other work that we're doing at the advisory board or how to access any of the resources that we have available. Um, happy to help with any of that. Great. And, and Brian, I'll have you hold on the line real quick. But, uh, but for those listening, uh, Brian didn't mention this, but his cell phone is actually 555. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. But um, uh, for those listening to you know, throughout this uh, you know, 30, 40 minutes here that we've, uh, that we've been recording, uh, thanks a ton for your listening ear. And until the next episode of MedSider, uh, take care.